All right, today this is actually part two. Sorry if you missed part one on the five solas of the Reformation. Last week was the uh, actually the 499th anniversary when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or arguments to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. So next year we get to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the rescuing of the gospel. That's what it was about. So we've, like I said, we've already looked at the first two solas or onlys or alones of the Reformation. So let's just, we'll jump right into number three here. Number three is called sola gratia. Kind of obvious, hopefully, to you that this is what this is dealing with is salvation by grace alone. Salvation by grace alone. You might wonder. Some people wonder. Well. Why why was this even necessary to talk about? Well, a central cry of the Reformation here was salvation by grace alone because the Roman Catholic Church still teaches even today, and I'm, I'm quoting from their official doctrine, that a sacrifice, sorry, that the Mass is a sacrifice which is truly propitiary. And propitiation just means uh, that God's Wrath is appeased through some means. So, through for the, in this situation, the means that God's wrath is appeased is through the Mass. They also teach that by the Mass, and I'm quoting again from their theology, that God grants us grace and the gift of penitence, remits our faults, and even our enormous sins. So, the Reformers returned to the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. It was literally a rescuing of the gospel. They taught that our righteousness, or or say our righteous standing, I should say, before God is imputed to us by grace because of the work of Christ Jesus. Now, before we read some scripture together, I I want you to see that many of the, the church creeds and doctrinal confessions uh, were going clearly against the Roman Catholic teaching. So here's an example from the Baptist Confession of Faith. It says this, quote, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified, and did, by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Now that that's a mouthful, I know, but it's, it's pretty much coming from places like Ephesians chapter 1, one of my favorite texts in the Bible. Verse 3 says this. Sorry, I didn't put that one up there, did I? I did, sorry. I did put that one up there. Okay, Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Notice uh, mentions God's grace there a couple times in that passage. That's it's to the praise of the glory of His grace. It says, and then the last verse, verse eight, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. That's why God did that. So let me before we jump into Romans here, let me give you some historical background on some church history that will be helpful for you to understand why the Reformation took place, why it needed to take place, because this debate is nothing new. In fact, the debate over salvation by grace probably had its most significant participants in uh, two men named Augustine and Pelagius. They lived in the uh, uh, late 300s to the 400s. Augustine was a bishop in North Africa. Pelagius was a, a monk. Pelagius' teachings included a denial of original sin, and, and, and by the way, that just means he didn't believe that there was any flow-on effect from Adam's sin to us. Uh, he didn't believe in predestination, and uh, it, he also a st- strong support of man's free will and his innate ability to do good. He just had this idea that every baby that's born into this world is, is good. It wasn't born with a sin nature. And so Augustine debated Pelagius. And in the year 416, two different church councils excommunicated Pelagius for his false teachings. So it was pretty much universal uh, at, at, at that time. Now the point of this, this background is to show that the debate over the free will of man in our dependence upon the grace of God in no way originated in the Reformation. This is nothing new. However, the gains that were actually secured by Augustine had all but been lost by the 1500s when uh, another two, two other big characters in church history came on the scene. And again, this was highly debated. And so there was this legendary debate that occurred between, well, actually it came after these men. So it was, it was based on the theology of John Calvin and another man named Jacob Arminius. Now you need to understand, Calvin was already dead. All right. So although Calvin had been dead for many years, Arminius comes along, he hates the teachings, particularly the ones in regard to the sovereignty of God. And so he responds to Calvin's teachings, uh, and he, he lifts up the, the teaching of free will and elect, uh, downplays election. And so in the year 1618, which, by the way, 15, 54 years after the death of John Calvin, and nine years after the death of Arminius, there was a, a, a church meeting called the Synod of Dort where they, they drew up five points. 
though a lot of people think Calvin was the one who came up with the five points of Calvin, of Calvinism. That's actually not true. Calvin didn't come up with those. It was, he was long dead by this time. But anyway, they came up with a five, a five point response to the five point position of Arminius. And that's how they came up with these, these five points of Calvinism. But you need to understand something. At the heart of the issue here, really, was this old debate that goes back to Augustine and Pelagius. And so there was this the belief that unfortunately kept hanging on, which was called Pelagianism. And the Catholic Church kind of held on to that, ad- ad- adapted it to something that was more like a semi-Pelagianism. Anyway, I won't, I won't get into all of that theology, but you need to understand that's what was going on. Even though earlier church councils had declared that that was false teaching. The Catholic Church here now by the 1500s was was wholly into it. So with that little background in mind, let me give you a quick uh, biblical defense of sola gratia, or salvation by grace alone. First of all, we need to understand the Bible teaches the total depravity of mankind. Uh, another way of looking at this is total corruption. Your, your entire being is corrupted by sin. There is no spark of so-called divinity within you. You were not born good. And so before we can really understand the grace of God, we need to understand the situation that makes God's grace necessary. See, my friends, in Adam, all of the human race has been included in his fall. All of it. He's your federal head, if you will. And so not only did we inherit a nature that's in bondage to sin, but we ourselves are actually born into sin. Now this is something we'll, I'll show you here in Scripture. Look, look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. So we need to understand, at birth, we are enemies of God. It's not a pretty picture. So look at Romans 3, verse 10. By, by the way... If your Bible's like mine, you'll see all these quotes coming from the Old Testament. Various quotes here. And that's why it might look a little different instead of being squared off in your Bible. But Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Anyway, we could keep reading, but you, you get the point? <laughs> I hope you get the point. And so the reason why the gospel, this good news, is good news, is because it resolves the bad news. See, we're not only born in sin, the, the Bible is showing us we continue in sin each day. And so if we say... Well, according to 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say we have not sinned, then we are only deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the first thing we, we must come to understand is, is a definition of the word grace. It's really a multifaceted word. Grace is commonly defined as unmerited favor. But we need to really go further than that. It is much more than that. By definition, grace must be completely free from works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. In other words, 
you can't merit it. You can't do anything to receive this or force God's hand in any way. So, first of all, we see here that the Bible teaches the total depravity of mankind. Or as Romans says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Nobody's seeking for God. But that leads us in a really nasty place. So let me give you some good news. A second truth that we see in the Bible is that God is both the just and the justifier. And so, we, again, we see this truth in the same place, in fact, in Romans chapter 3. So the next logical point that we might come up for consideration is on what basis can a just God then deploy His grace to us? If God is just, which He is, because I love the verse in 1 John chapter 1 that says that God is faithful and just, because of that He's willing and able to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, since God is just, then wait a minute, how, how can that happen? How can He give us grace, unmerited favor? Or in other words, how can a righteous and just God not impose the sanctions of the law upon us? It's plain to see that all of us deserve condemnation. We deserve eternal punishment. So it's easy to see how a, a righteous God then could pour out His wrath on His creation. So how could a righteous God possibly allow anybody into heaven? How does that happen? And so the answer is here in Romans chapter 3, where we see a righteous God declares that He is just, but He's also the one who justifies. In other words, justification just means God declares us to have the righteousness of Christ. We need to remember that justification is a legal term. It just means that one is, somebody who is guilty is now declared no longer guilty. But it's, it's even better than that because we go from, not, you're not just innocent, but God the Father now looks at you through Christ. He sees Christ in you. That's how good it is. So let's look at a passage here, Romans 3, which shows that God is just and the justifier. And he has to be both. <laughs> All right? So Romans 3, verse 21. <clears throat> but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So please notice that last verse. He is the just and the justifier. He's the only one 
because He is just, who is now able to declare you to be righteous. And that's how you can get into heaven. Beautiful news. So how can a righteous God be both the giver of a perfect law and then be a just God and not convict those who have offended and broken that law? We've all broken the law. Romans 3 tells us that. And so the glorious answer to that that can be actually found in Romans chapter 8. So please turn there. Romans 8 really answers this. Romans 8 is going to tell us that God fulfilled the righteous requirement of His righteous law here by making His own Son, Jesus, to be our sin. And then He imputed our sin to Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. So look at Romans 8, verse 1. There is, therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I hope you can see there in that passage that he fulfilled the righteous requirements of his righteous law. He is the just and the justifier. But a third point we see in the, in the Bible is this, that God is also the glorifier. He's also the glorifier. So the grace of God has clearly justified us. We've seen that. And it continues to sanctify us by conforming us into the image of His Son. And if you read on here in Romans 8, it, it, it talks about that very thing. For example... If you look at verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the word glorified. Past tense, by the way. And there's a reason for that, because in God's eyes, those whom He calls and justifies, as far as He's concerned, you're already glorified. Practically speaking, no. We we know we're not yet, 
but you will be. You will be. It's a done deal. So by the same grace, he's also glorified those whom it has saved, and this glorification is the adoption as sons. And so when we were enemies of God, while we were still sinners, the Bible says God sent his son to secure the salvation for the sinners. But this grace, by the way, didn't end at justification. Praise God, his grace continues on past the moment where he declares you righteous. It goes further. It glorifies us to the point of adoption as sons. We receive this guarantee. We have a guarantee of of eternal life. We have a guarantee of an inheritance. We have this right to, we are called to the Father, just like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And so we're taken from a position of being by nature, an object of God's wrath. Now we have this position of sonship. And we have this position of an eternal inheritance. We didn't earn it, but it's given to us by God's grace. So that's just a little bit of a background, an introduction to sola gratia, that salvation is by grace alone. But another point that the Reformers were making as they were attempting to rescue the gospel is sola fide. Sola fide means that justification is by faith alone. Now this is significant because the Catholics believe in faith. Many do. The problem was it wasn't faith alone. It was faith plus good works. So let me give you... Again, some historical background. This is probably the doctrine that caused the most turmoil during the Reformation. And by that I mean sola fide, faith alone. It was the very doctrine, by the way, that prompted Martin Luther to nail the 95 Theses to the church door there in Wittenberg, Germany. And when when he did that, he was was challenging his church, At the time, it was still his church. He was challenging them, particularly on the position of indulgences. He had heard a sermon preached by a Catholic clergyman, and it really made him angry. And uh, it had very crude theology and included materialism and so forth. So upon returning back to Wittenberg, he drafted the 95 Theses, and then he posted them on the church door on October 31st. 1517. Well, that created a firestorm. The Catholic Church condemned Luther's writings, actually wrote an order, even came from the Pope himself. They wanted his works burned. Well, in response, some of Martin Luther's followers burned the order that came from the Pope. And Luther, as a result of this, uh, he's, he's excommunicated from the church ends up becoming a very prolific writer, composed a number of works that refuted the indulgences, as well as many other things. And, and he became rock solid on, on sola fide, that it's faith alone that saves. You were justified by faith alone. So the Catholic position was in, in clear opposition to faith alone. In fact, it stated that the grace of God was poured into us, 
And so as this pouring or infusing occurred, it made us righteous, and thus able then we're, we're able to perform good works. They said that our free will cooperates with God and then performed the works and together made us fit for salvation. So our, our works are also making us fit for salvation, is what they were saying. It was taught that only by our will that it cooperates with God's grace and then producing this good work was, was the sinner able then to merit salvation. That's how you earn your salvation. Therefore, grace was infused, and we cooperate with it to produce good works that belong to us, not to God, but to us. And those good works improve, by the way, according to their teaching, they would improve with time until they're such that we have pleased God enough that, uh, that, that, that He is now willing to grant us salvation. So justification to the Catholic theology is a process it's not an event that we would call justification so in other words they were confusing justification with sanctification is what they were doing and they still do so let me give you a biblical defense of faith alone or sola fide well there's many passages we could look at but uh Martin Luther loved Galatians. In fact, he wrote a commentary on it. So let's, let's start there. Galatians 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that one who is justified by the law before God is evidence. For the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. So that's Galatians. While we're in Romans, let's see what Romans has to say. Romans 10. Romans 10. Romans is going to say the same thing, because Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit. It's all united. It's, it's one. There's no divisions here. So Romans 10, look at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Well, let me just explain something here. Paul's talking about Israel. His desires for Israel to be saved. In verse 2 he says, For I, have, for I bear w- them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Whoa, praise God. 
all of God's people should be rejoicing because Christ is the end for everyone who believes. So let me make a few quick points here from Romans. Number one, God provides the righteousness that we need. He does that. And that's, again, found throughout Scripture. And so even from the first pages of the Scriptures, even in Genesis, we, we see hints of redemption right after the fall of mankind into sin. In fact, in Genesis 3, verse 21, we see the provision of a sacrifice for Adam and Eve. What does God do? They're, they're trying to hide from God because of their, of their sin. God provides them a sacrifice. He had, to, he had to kill an animal, take off the skins off, off the animal or animals to provide them a covering. And so having come to see their shame, what were they trying to do? They're, they're trying to sew leaves together, try, trying to hide their shame, their guilt as a result of their sin. What are they doing? They're, they're trying to do it their way. But what does God do? He provides a durable covering of skin through the sacrifice of an animal. And this is an early picture of the gospel. It reveals God's intent here right from the very beginning. He's going to provide a righteousness that's not external, but it's something that's going to go all the way in, going to be internal. So God's the one providing the righteousness. Number two, God imputes, not infuses that righteousness, and not our sins. Now, there's a difference between impute and infuse. Okay? Uh, for those of you who had a cup of tea this morning, and if you used one of those tea bags, you might understand what infusion is. To infuse is what happens when the tea bag goes into the hot water. Hot water starts seeping into the dry tea leaves. The hot water then brings out whatever it is in those tea leaves. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the chemical makeup. But then that starts coming into all the hot water, doesn't it? And your, your hot water turns dark when you leave it there long enough. But in Romans 4, I want you to see this. Romans 4, Paul declares here that our righteousness comes through God... In His mercy, and it's not imputing our sins to us, but instead it's imputing Christ's righteousness to us. So God takes our sin, He puts it on Christ, and then He takes Christ's righteousness, and He imputes that to the believer. Okay, It's it's an exchange. So look at this in Romans 1. Sorry, Romans 4, sorry. Romans 4, and of course Abraham's the the prime example of this, because Abraham was justified by his faith. So look at this, Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, we could keep reading, but let's stop there. I hope you get the point. So God is imputing this righteousness. It's, it's not like a teabag you know, where the righteousness might come out of the teabag. No. God is the one putting the righteousness into the believer. And number three, we receive the imputation by faith. This imputation happens by faith. And if you keep reading on here in Romans 4, we'll see this idea. I want you to see how Paul shows how this righteousness is given through faith. Through faith. It's a belief in the promises of God and what He has done. So look at Romans 4, verse 13. Romans 4, 13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. (laughs) Amen to that. We'll stop there. So, notice, it's to us also, not just for Abraham. So, it was his, because of his faith in Jesus Christ's person and work that justification was happening here. Okay? Uh, another point that needs to be made on sola fide is this, that faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. You can't even muster up the faith. Okay, so for example, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice, even the faith is a gift of God. By the way, a gift is, it's not earned. It's not merited. You can't pay for it. It's free. Otherwise, it's no longer a gift. 
It's God who does this. It is not your own doing, it clearly says, so that none of us would have pride in ourselves. And that's, that's the danger here. So faith is a gift. So Ephesians declares the basis of our salvation is the grace of God by faith in Christ alone. And so that perfect righteousness is imputed to us through faith. By the way, knowing that we have deceitful hearts, God knew that some of us, all of us, would be tempted to boast even in this faith. So God says, I'm going to give you the gift of faith so that you can't boast even in that much. So God provides the faith necessary for salvation. And he does it as a free gift. And so our boasting is then to be in Christ alone. Well, the last of the solas or onlys of the Reformation is sola deo gloria. Which just means for the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. Well, there is, as all of these have shown, there is a historical background, so quickly I'll Try to give you a little survey on this. Of course, there are many battles during the Reformation period there where this principle was the central issue. The Reformers were taking on the Catholic Church of that day with regard to her glorification of idols and the images and the relics and the worship of Mary and popes and so forth. They also opposed the glorification of even the office of the Pope, even the church officers, the cardinals, bishops, and so forth. Another dispute that was taking place was the glorification of Mary. So they had this idea that you could pray to Mary because Jesus is, or sorry, Mary's going to tell Jesus what to do. And so Mary was elevated to be above Christ in many ways and some others parallel to him. Sola Deo Gloria was this overarching principle of the Reformation. It related to every battle of protest by the Reformers, because what was at stake was God's glory. And so that's why they came up with all those other solas, or onlys. So what did the Reformers do? Because this was idolatry. This is what it was. It was idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. So they reclaim the scriptural teaching of the sovereignty of God over every aspect of a believer's life. All of life is to be lived to the glory of God, the Bible says. I'll show you some scriptures to prove that, but uh, I hope you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Very first question asks this very important question, what is the chief end of mankind? The answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I've heard it reworded to say that man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Anyway, I won't get into that, but here's the point. In contrast to the monastic division of life, which was divided into the sacred and the secular, the Reformers saw all of life was no longer had this huge division, but all of life was to be lived under the Lordship of Christ. All of life. 
And, and this is coming from places like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, which says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Notice, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It, it's, it's all to be a sacred thing. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. There is no division between secular and sacred in God's eyes. And so as we think about this, it's all for God's glory. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? How do I do that? Well, you really need to define glory. In our day, we are very accustomed to the word glory, but if you were to ask Christians, well, what does that mean? You'd probably get different answers. Uh, So we need to remember that when we consider the glory of God, uh, we can think of glory in, as a noun as well as a verb. In other words, it, it's, it's a thing as well as an action. And, and we often use it as a noun and a verb. The noun glory is similar to the word honor or esteem. It's the outward manifestation of all the attributes of God. So you think of all of God's attributes, His, his whole Nature summed up with the word glory. So as His attributes are displayed in the universe, then what is happening is God is glorifying Himself. And so all of His attributes shine forth His glory and His honor. They're declaring His uniqueness. And although we were made by Him in His image, we are not God, are we? (laughs) We're not. So the second part of glory is the verb to glorify. To glorify. This is the declaration of high praise and honor to worship God. That's an action. That's something you do. It's an acknowledgement of who God is because of His very nature, His attributes. This is how we are to respond to God. So all that God does manifests is honored then to the entire universe. So it's really a multifaceted thing when you think about this. So let's give a biblical defense of sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, very quickly. Well, the Psalms are just filled with this imagery that everything is done for the glory of God. That's why God does what He does. And so we're to do the same. For example, in Psalm 148, verse 13, it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Notice the Scriptures declare God's a jealous God. And by the way, that, that He's not sinning. God's not sinning when He's jealous for His name and His reputation and His worth. And so it requires that nothing else be worshipped in His place. He's the only one worthy of that worship. And so any substitution then of God becomes idolatry. And that's what he's talking about here. 
So, can sinners glorify God? It's a little bit of a sticky question. Can sinners glorify God? Well, the Bible says that all of the nations will glorify God, at least one day. Uh, Psalm 86, verse 9 says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And so we need to understand, as the Reformers were rescuing the gospel, one of the central issues during the Reformation was the improper exaltation of the officers in the church. Even beginning during the 3rd century, way, way back then, there began to develop this mindset that the highest form of worship to God could only be offered by people who were in full-time ministry. And so, you know, that's where this, this idea where the monasteries ended up coming from and the nunneries. And, you know, so if you're a woman, you could become a nun. Man, you could become a monk. And, you know, if you want to become a bishop, a cardinal. And the, the highest office, of course, was the, the pope. You know, that was, that was the greatest honor. And so the service of God was the only calling and, and all the other vocations in life were, were therefore mundane. They were somehow inferior. And this is, by the way, not to say they believed work to be unimportant. <laughs> Rather, they all believed that ordinary work was necessary, but it was somehow humiliating. Because it wasn't up there at the level with these church offices. And so by the time of the Reformation, the Reformers saw that this principle had fully blossomed into then to the worship of saints, the worship of the offices in the church, the vocation, which alone glorifies God, was deemed by the church to be the offices of the church. And so the, these people were doing the work of God, quotation marks. <laughs> and so out of this came what was called the Protestant work ethic. Praise God. <laughs> The Protestant work ethic was something that was very different. And so at the heart of the debate were these words calling and talent. And the Reformers began to use the term calling to be then any vocation for which God had equipped somebody to perform. They believed that whatever work God had given to us to do, if that was done faithfully, that would be equally glorifying to God as, just as, as what the Pope did, for example. So in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul teaches there that whatever it is that we do, doesn't matter whether it's mundane or it's extraordinary, all should be done by faith to the glory of God. And so they also use the term talent to be uh, given by God for the purpose of accomplishing work. So, praise God, I'm very thankful for this. Reformers made no distinction between spiritual or the temporal between the sacred and the secular. Uh, they believed that whether you were preaching in a pulpit, whether you were trimming trees in the orchard, or you were working in your kitchen, or you were working in a factory, or sitting behind a computer at a desk, it was all God's work. Praise God for that. It's all God's work. And we can do all of that for God's glory. So let me ask you this question as we end. Should the Reformation continue? 
Well, let me just, before I really answer that question, let me be clear, my friends, that the Catholic Church is full of people who don't necessarily affirm what their institution still officially believes and teaches. In other words, there are people within their system who don't actually believe their you know, official doctrines. And so uh, with that in mind, you'd probably find people within those churches who could be converted people. But however, having said that, it doesn't mean that the institution or its hierarchy have become evangelical. I was certainly not calling Protestant either. But the perpetual difficulty when dealing with Catholics is you can be talking about the same words sometimes, but you have different definitions. That's the tricky part. I mean, justification, faith, so forth, right? You use the same English words, but they think a different way. You need to be aware of that. So statements they make may sound evangelical, but hidden beneath them is a system that is denying Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, and grace alone. And so I wish I could say the Reformation were over, but sadly it is not. You know, of course, traditional masses are, are still going on today. And while traditional masses are still said, there are serious gospel differences between Protestants and Catholics. Huge doctrinal divides still exist. And so until Christ comes again, we need to continue the work of the Reformers. We need to continually be rescuing the gospel from false teachers and false doctrines. So I hope that you would be encouraged to stand for the truth and may God enable us to rescue the gospel, to stand for the truth, stand for what is important, what is essential. Let's pray.